And there were two announcements I meant to make this morning, and I did one is there's a visitor's card. There's a visitor's card on your table. If you're visiting with us this morning, please fill us out. I promise you we will not pester you unless you want us, unless you write pester me on it. Uh, we just want to know who you are. We want to be like the bar and cheers where everybody knows your name, and that helps us to get to know you. So please do that if you're visiting. Uh, and you have some questions about our worship or something you hear and see in the bulletin or something you hear during the message, speak with me afterward. I would love to chat with you about that. Second announcement is even a happier announcement. Charles and Carol read it. This is their anniversary. I was talking with them before this. Today is their 57th anniversary. You all stand. We're going to cheer for you. Let's pray and ask the Father to teach us as we come to this passage. Our Father, as we gather and we're able to sing again, we sang before, Father, in our hearts and we sang quietly, but finally we can put voice to what's inside of us. And thank you. Thank you for this great day. Thank you for protecting us during this time, for keeping us, for sparing us, for healing us. We pray that, Father, this would continue. Build a hedge around us, Father. Protect us from this awful disease. And we pray that you would destroy it, completely eradicate it, we ask. Father, protect us from the evil one. For there's someone more dangerous out there than COVID-19. And he roams to and fro and Father, he would shred every gospel church in Fayette County this morning if he could. Oh, build a hedge around us and protect us. Our Father, we pray that you would bless our farmers. We thank you for the rain. Uh, we thank you for the sunshine this morning, and we pray that you would give our farmers a good planting season and a wonderful summer and a great harvest crop in the fall. And Father, these things are by your hand. We pray that you would bless in this springtime planting season. And now, Father, as we open your word, to this monumental passage, to this monumental conversation, we pray that you would teach us. You've taught us before in this room. And that's why we're here this morning. We've come to see you, to speak with you and hear you speak to us. And so we're your children, Father, once more asking that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so it will make any difference in our lives. And Father, you has spoken and you've changed our lives. Maybe you'll change someone's life this morning for the first time. Oh, Father, teach us for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so, you want a conversation with Jesus? Exclamation point. 
question mark. Jesus had come south to Jerusalem after beginning his ministry in the north lands in Galilee. He had come to Jerusalem for the greatest feast of the Jewish year. He had come for Passover celebration. We saw two weeks ago that as he entered Jerusalem, he went immediately to the temple. He was appalled. He was incensed at what he saw. A secular market had been established, not outside the temple, but had been established inside the place of worship, inside the court of the Gentiles. A place of prayer and worship had been changed into a mart, a money-making scheme. His response was immediate and forceful. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He made a whip out of some cords and drove out the sacrificial animals that were being sold there. However, we looked at that. We looked at it thoroughly. The chapter does not end there. There are three strange verses that seem to just come out of nowhere. Maybe you thought that as we read it this morning. It's where, you know, we didn't start with verse 1 of chapter 3. We started with verse 23 of chapter 2. What does this have to do? Why, why is this there? They seem to come out of nowhere because they're not connected with what Jesus was doing in the temple or what Jesus did in the temple. With these verses, John was not drawing chapter 2 to a close. Instead, John was actually introducing one of the most famous conversations that's recorded in all of Scripture. Now, to understand this, we must remember that the chapter and verse divisions that are in most of our Bibles today, those chapter and verse divisions were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were actually added in the 13th century to help scholars, to help those reading Scripture, to help those teaching Scripture to better reference and organize their studies. The Gospel of John, for instance, let's do this. The Gospel of John in our Bibles is divided into 21 chapters. Now, when John was writing this Gospel, he did not say chapter 1 and begin to write. He didn't come to the end of chapter 1 and say, okay, now start writing chapter 2. When he changed the subject, he would simply begin a new paragraph. Now, the editors who developed this system of chapters and verses did us a great favor. We don't want to do away with that. But they're not inerrant. They're not infallible. And this is a good illustration of that. What we read in Scripture is infallible, and it is inerrant. But those chapter and verse divisions are not. I say this, and have taken time to say this, because the last three verses of chapter 2 really should have been the beginning of chapter 3. 
And you say, what does it matter? These three verses are an introduction, an important introduction to this renowned conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Let's look at those verses. Now, when this is, this is chapter two, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And we saw two weeks ago that he exerted his authority in the temple and he, in doing that, he was making a claim what? To be the Messiah. They actually questioned the authorities in the temple, actually questioned him about that. But he must have done many other signs because we, we read there that because many believed when they saw the signs, plural, that he was doing. So there were miracles there that are not recorded in Scripture. So people were attracted to this and probably wanted to join whatever this movement was. Or they would come to him and, and want him to join their effort in this, in their special Jewish group. But John states, look at it, he states that he did not, Jesus did not commit himself to anyone. He knew what was inside of all of them. He did not need anyone to tell them. He didn't need, he didn't need anyone to say, he didn't need John or Matthew to say, well, this is who this is, and this is who this is. No, he already knew. He knew what was inside of everyone that he met. Look at the end of verse 25. For he himself knew what was in man. Now look at the very next sentence John writes. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Now you see it? Jesus knew what was inside of man in the very next sentence. John is saying, for instance, there was a man called Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was seeking a conversation with Jesus. Do you know how dangerous it is to seek a conversation with Jesus? Now, you know, you see Nicodemus come looking for Jesus. Jesus didn't go find him. Nicodemus came to find Jesus. And you're watching, you would have said Nicodemus, Nicodemus, do you know who he is? You really seriously would have a conversation with him. He's going to turn your life upside down. It's dangerous to speak to a person. I don't want to speak to a person that knows all about me from the inside out, that knows me better than I know myself. In the very next chapter, in chapter four, we'll come to it in a couple of Jesus is at Samaria, outside the city of Samaria, the well of Samaria, and a woman comes out. And they start this conversation. And in, the, in that conversation, Jesus tells her, go get your husband in town. Bring him out here. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, and you just see him smiling. You said correctly. For you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. 
Now, put yourself in What? How do you know that? It's unnerving when someone seems to know what you're thinking before you say anything to them. I couldn't write this this week without <clears throat> thinking back to the year of 2004. Eric Alexander, Dr. Eric Alexander, a well-known minister from Glasgow, Scotland, was speaking at Independent. I had known him for several years. I counted him as a friend and still count him as a friend. We were leaving the church one evening, and Eric said something to me that shook me, really shook me. He offered me some unsolicited advice. Now, he was not being arrogant. He's a very, very humble man, very dear man. But his advice was very specific about the situation. And it, it's something, he, he said something that spoke about something I'd been thinking for the entire year. I hadn't told a soul. I hadn't told Janet. I hadn't told anyone. No one. There was no way Eric could know. Because what he said spoke directly to that. And I had to stop and I said, Eric, Eric, why, why did you say that to me? And he was startled. He looked at me. He said, John, I was just thinking about your ministry and this, this church. But he said, why? Or why? Is this upsetting you? And I said, I told him for the last year, this has been this most central part of my prayer. Of my prayers. It's been a major concern. I confided in him. Months later. When I did act. Against the counsel. He had given. He wrote me a note. In Scotland. And he said. When I just now heard what you were planning. If it had not been for our conversation. <clears throat> if you had not explained. I would have boarded. A plane. To come see you. Today, he said, but as it is, I understand. And I have confidence that you're doing the Lord's will and he will bless you in it. But what unnerved me was somebody spoke to me in a way that said, I know about you. Remember the woman at the well? When she ran back to, she ran back to town, do you know what she said? Come out and see a man who told me everything about my life, who knew all about me. Nicodemus might, if he were here this morning, Nicodemus might say to us, you want a conversation with Jesus? You just might turn your life upside down. Every word Jesus said to Nicodemus was based on what Jesus knew about him. And Jesus knew Nicodemus to the very core of his being. People, I couldn't help that this week, because I was writing this, I was thinking about when I pray, when I speak to the Father, when I speak to Christ. Remember, you're not informing him. He knows everything you're not saying. He knows of our lies, our misrepresentations that we've spoken that very day. He knows our adulterous thoughts. He knows 
are words of empty flattery. This very hour as we have worshipped, he has known the sincerity and he's known the insincerity of our words. Now, to understand why Jesus said what he did to Nicodemus, you must know who this man is. We are told his name is Nicodemus. That's not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. People in Israel would give their children, people in, of the upper class, wealthy people, would give their children two names. They would give them a noble Jewish name, and then they would give them a noble Greek name. When they traveled in the world outside of Israel for education and business, they would use their Greek name. Evidently, Nicodemus was well-traveled in the Mediterranean world, for he had chosen to use his Greek name even inside of Israel. Now, before we're told his name, John tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a religious party and a political party, just like our Republicans, Democrats, Independents, they were a political party. They were also a religious party, very religious party. They were an elite party known for their piety, known for their strict moral code. John also identifies him as a ruler in Israel. That meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling group for Israel made up of only Israelites, made up of only men. There were 71. So he was one of 71 of those powerful Jewish people in Israel in that day. This man had gravitas. He came to Jesus by night. He did not want to be noticed by the world or by, from, by people from his world. He didn't want to be seen. Jesus, why? Jesus was already considered an outlier by the leaders of the temple because he had done, done what he had done there. He was already considered an outlier by the Sanhedrin because of the incredible claims that he was making. Nicodemus comes at night. At the end of, at the, end of the book of John, after Jesus dies on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, also a member of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus bury the body of Jesus. We're told in that passage, you can read it this afternoon at the end of John, we're told in that passage that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus. But you know what John says about Nicodemus in that passage? He only says this. Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus by night. That was his way of saying he too was a secret follower of Jesus. Now let's get down to the conversation. Nicodemus shows his respect for Jesus by calling him rabbi, rabbi, teacher. We know that you're a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs, do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. Only God could do what you're doing. You know what's fascinating? Look at Jesus' reply. Nicodemus pays him a compliment. Jesus could have easily said, Nicodemus, thank you. 
He looked at Nicodemus. It was as if he didn't hear what it's as if he didn't hear what Nicodemus says. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Truly, truly, the old King James version says, "Verily, verily." It was a way of making emphasis about what comes next. It was you were saying to, if you use that, "Amen and amen." It's our word, "Amen." Amen and amen. You were saying. This is uber important. This is huge. Are you listening? Verily, verily. Certainly, certainly. I like to translate it. This is certain. This is certain. Francis Schaeffer used to say, this is true truth. Sounds redundant. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. The Greek, therefore, born again, can also be translated born from above. Either translation is powerfully accurate. Either one. Why did Jesus say this to Nicodemus? He already knew Nicodemus. He knew what Nicodemus needed. You see, Nicodemus had spent his entire life seeking an inward transformation, seeking to be acceptable in God's sight simply by having an outward reformation. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll live in such a way that my morality will recommend me to God, that my religious faithfulness will recommend me to God. He thought he would be saved by all this outward show. Now, Nicodemus quickly responds, and Jesus was saying, you need to be born again. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now, Nicodemus quickly shows his ignorance. You can just see him. He's he's an older person. How can a man be born on his own? Can I enter a second time? He's laughing. Can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? That's ridiculous. This is why, by the way, that I prefer the translation born again, because that's the way Nicodemus understood it. Can I enter again into my mother's womb? There are three, then, and so what does Jesus, how does Jesus, what does Jesus say next? He repeats, truly, truly, amen and amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, there are three different ways of interpreting those words. Don't worry, we're not going to look at all three. I'm just going to tell you which is the right one. I don't think he's speaking about baptism there. I'm fairly certain he's not speaking about baptism. Baptism doesn't say. I think it's very simple. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born physically. You must be born of water. What happens when a woman's water breaks? She goes into labor. When a woman goes into labor, we say her water is broken. The embryonic embryonic sac is broken, born of water. You've got to be born physically, Nicodemus. But you must also be born spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit. You were born once, Nicodemus, from your mother's womb. Now you must be born by the Holy Spirit. You must be transformed inwardly. 
if you would see the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for us to grasp how huge this was to Nicodemus. Leon Morris, a great New Testament scholar of the 20th century, in his commentary on John, summarized it with this sentence. In one sentence, quote, in one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. Do you understand? Everything he was saying, Nicodemus, you spent your entire life trying to do something you can't do. That's impossible. All this effort that you're making, it's useless. It's not going to change the inside. He's saying all your moral obedience All your religious obedience is not going to change you. Nicodemus, you sure you want to have a conversation with him? Now let's switch gears. John 3. John 3, this passage with which we're so familiar, is the greatest chapter in the gospel about being born again. It is the chapter. It's the greatest chapter about regeneration. That's the theological word for being born again. It's the greatest chapter about regeneration. But we often miss what Jesus says about the cross in this chapter. We often miss what he says about justification. Justification is about standing innocent in the court of God. God declares us innocent before him. Regeneration is simply about a changed heart, being born again. What does being born again do? It wakes us up to the love of God. It wakes us up to the holiness of God. Why is that important? Because when we see the holiness of God, We know that we're not near as good as we think we are. Regeneration wakes us up to the terrifying truth of our own sinfulness. If you're here this morning and you're like Nicodemus and you're making a great effort with morality, you're making a great effort in religion to please God, to get your life straight, and you think your morality, you think you're good enough, You hadn't met the holiness of God. If that's your thinking. Regeneration. Wakes us up. And takes us straight to the cross. And that's exactly where Jesus took Nicodemus. It's exactly where he took him. Right to the cross. This is no small thing in this passage. Look at verse 14. Jesus adds this in his conversation. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Once more, Jesus uses the favorite title himself, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. We've come back to this in every single message. It's the most popular title that Jesus used about himself. Nothing else comes close. 81 times in the Gospels, he refers to himself as a son of man. It was 
It was Daniel's way of identifying the coming Messiah in Daniel 7. We've been in it this last week in our men's Bible study. Son of man coming on clouds of glory. Jesus was saying all through the gospels, I'm that son of man. And here he says, the son of man, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the son of man must be lifted up. You say, where in the world did he get that? It's in Numbers 21, beginning with verse 4. It's on your scripture sheet. Let's look at it. This is where he takes Nicodemus. Now, Jesus is doing this, remembering this. This is where Jesus takes Nicodemus. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, this worthless bread. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Think about this. God had brought Israel out of slavery. Not just a generation of slavery. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. At least 300 of those years had been in abject Poverty and slavery. God had brought them out. They hadn't done a thing. They hadn't lifted a sword or thrown a spear. God had brought them out from that awful situation. He had destroyed the Egyptian army that pursued them. He had guided them through the wilderness with a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He had provided water in the wilderness. He had provided manna and quail. And yet they constantly. Mankind, we hadn't changed, have we? They constantly complained against Moses and against God. When I was little and I was whining or complaining or crying, my dad would look at me and you know what he said. If your dad said the same thing to you, Luke, your dad says, dad says this to you, doesn't he? He would say, John Prentice, you better stop whining and stop crying. Stop complaining, because if you don't, I'm going to give you something to really cry about. That's what God did here. He sent a plague of snakes. He had sent plagues on the Egyptians, and now he sent a plague on Israel. <laughs> I love this. You just said it. I mean, the people did an immediate, you know, I hate snakes. Snakes brought about an immediate 180 degree turn. They come to Moses. Whoops. Did we ever Mess this up. Well, I said, Moses, please pray. Moses, pray. God said, make an image of these fiery servants. Make an image of this and put it on a pole. Everyone who looks at this symbol, who looks at this bronze snake will be healed. Over a thousand years later, the Messiah of Israel reached back to this obscure passage. And he says, Nicodemus, 
Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus didn't know about the cross. His Jesus' disciples didn't know about the cross. But this morning, you could not read this without thinking about the cross. You don't need anyone to interpret. You say, that's the cross. You see, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness to effect a remedy, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He'll take the sting. He'll take the poison of the serpent upon himself. There's a fiery serpent that is killing mankind. There's a poison in us for which man does not have a remedy. The serpent on the pole was just a symbol. The serpent was just a bronze image. It, it took no action. It could take no action. It suffered no will. It was only an image. However, Jesus on the cross was not a symbol. Mankind, mankind needed more than a physical healing from a fever. The symbol of the snake on the pole took nothing upon itself. Jesus on that cross took our sin. And he not only took our sin, it was very real. He took our guilt and he bore our What am I saying to you in this chapter? This sums it up. If you've been off in la-la land or you've been dozing, wake up and hear this. In this chapter, Jesus covers the entire scope of man's salvation. With Nicodemus, he covers the entire scope of salvation. It's not only a great chapter about regeneration. It's a great chapter about the cross and about our salvation. You see, all of us have two problems with sin. We have a legal problem. In God's courtroom, we are guilty. No one can stand there innocent. Do you know why the world walks around out there totally indifferent to this? It's because their hearts are dead. You're dead to God. Because when you're born again, as we said earlier, the first thing you do is you see a holy God and you understand. We never pray, Father, do this for us because I'm good. I didn't ask the Father to teach us this morning because we're good, because we're proven we're good and we're proven we're deserving. There's not a soul in this room that's deserving of the Father to teach them. Being born again wakes our hearts. Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you're asleep. You're dead. Somebody needs to wake you up. And the only person who can do that is not the law. And it's not obedience to the law. The only person to do that is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Nicodemus, your meticulous religious obedience does not have the power to change you at the very core of your being. But Jesus didn't stop there. Being born again would not take care of the legal problem Nicodemus had. If he's born again, he still 
He still has his sin. For which he must give an account. Nicodemus, the son of man, will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Nicodemus, when you're born again, you'll have a place to go to find forgiveness. To be able to say, as we sang this morning, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, because he took it, all of it, on the cross. He says, Nicodemus, I've come to take your sin, to stand in the courtroom of God with your sin, to take your guilt and take your punishment. Here's one sentence. The rebirth. You want to know if you're born again? You want to know? Have you been to the cross? The rebirth takes you to the cross. And you're born again? I can tell you what happens next. You've already been born again? I can tell you what was the first thing you did. You went to the cross to find redemption. And that's how we're going to close this morning. Usually in message from John 3, we close with a hymn about the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're singing, There is a Redeemer. And we learned it. In John chapter 3. Let's stand together as we sing.